I know you don't need a microphone to hear me because there aren't that many of you, um, but the elders have asked that pretty much every time I open my mouth to hit record. So uh, that's, that's a good thing. There are a few of us, enough of us here, that it would be really fun, just very quickly, could we just share our first names because we don't all know each other. And uh, that's a good thing. And you are the few, the proud, the evangelists. So uh, we need to know we need to know who we are. So let's just kind of sweep across this way and just say your first name, raise your hand, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Rudy's already introduced himself, and the guy with the cold is Evan <laughs> and Mason. And we'll start with that. Wait, say it one more time. Abajit. All right. All right. Okay, I guess we're working our way back this way. All right. We got it. Very good. Well, um, interesting thing about a local church is that if you have a meeting on how to manage your money, or how to um, do something that, that is just all about you, you know, we, we can fill the place. When you say, let's talk about one-on-one evangelism, this is a revival to have this many people here. And, and there's good reason for that, actually, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Um, the New Testament presents evangelism both as a gift and a command. Um, evangelism is the main task that God has given the Christians to do, and that's what we're here for. We are all witnesses, every one of us. And frankly, if you as a Christian, you, you decide I'm not going to partake in this or the old excuse is, well, it's not my gift, which I'm going to address in about five seconds. Um, you've missed the whole reason you're still here. If evangelism was not a command, when I baptize people, I would just hold them under and just send them straight to heaven because there's no other reason to be here, really. I mean, there's no other reason I can think of. I love my wife, but I'd rather, I'd rather enjoy her company in heaven when she and I are both perfected than, than here. That would be much better. Um, all Christians are called to be engaged in evangelism at some level. But I want to be very clear, not all of us are equally gifted at it. And I would put myself in the category of not as gifted at it. Um, I, I have found my niche. My niche is to preach the word and to do that in a way that uh, hopefully is, is clear. Acts 21, verse 8, we encounter a man that Luke calls Philip the evangelist. So apparently this guy had, an, had a reputation. This is what he did. It was his calling. Ephesians 4, 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets. Anybody know the next word? The evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. We don't need apostles. We have God's word. We don't need prophets. We have God's word. Do we need evangelists? Yes, we do. God commands all Christians to evangelize, but in his sovereign, mysterious wisdom, he's only gifted a few people to really um, be called uniquely to it. We are all called to it, but only some are uniquely gifted. And, you know, probably many of you here are like that. Some of you are here because you're not gifted and you want to get better at it, which is a, a noble thing. Some of you uh, are the type that you would, you would bring into the kingdom a post if it'll just stand there long enough. Um, you're just naturally geared that way, and we praise the Lord for you. Now, what I want to do this morning, this is very informal, I don't want to talk about so much of the content of the gospel. don't want to talk about techniques or methods, although that's very interesting. The method is preach the word and proclaim the biblical gospel. Um, Christ is the center of that. You proclaim repentance and faith, 
And there you go. What I want to do is just talk informally kind of about your personal plan um, for evangelism. Let me just define evangelism first of all. It is the proclamation of the gospel of Christ to the glory of God. That's all it is. The proclamation of the gospel of Christ to the glory of God. And I want to debunk a myth. Evangelism is not soul winning. I hate that phrase. It's unbiblical. I've never won a single soul in my entire life. God does the changing. He does the transforming. Our job is to proclaim the message. And that's it. Um, God's job is to save souls through the proclaimed message. It, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. There, there are lots of churches, actually, you can read in their bulletin. Wednesday night, we're going soul winning. No, you're not. You're going out proclaiming the gospel. God is going soul winning. And it's, it's very arrogant to say that. And frankly, uh, that often goes together with the idea of being able to manipulate people into the kingdom. And to get them to pray a prayer and to try to close the sale, so to speak. And then to put a notch in your belt. This is the typical church that says, yes, we uh, have on our membership roll 750 people. And then on Sunday morning, they have 19 people there. Well, where are the 750? Well, there are people who have gotten saved. They just don't ever come to church. And they don't live a life pleasing to the Lord. And, but they're saved. We got them. You know, they're written down right here. We've proved it. Well, your church role is not the book of life. Okay, there's a, there's a difference. So I want to just for maybe a couple minutes talk about the, the motives to do the work of an evangelist. But then just very practically, I want to share the means. The motives and the means. There's three motives, I would say, and, and I'm putting them in order of importance. The first one is to proclaim the glory of God. To proclaim the glory of God. 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul speaks of being in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's the number one reason to proclaim the gospel, because it gives God glory, and it's a reflection of his glory. Second motive is that the lost might obtain the glory of Christ. That the lost might obtain the glory of Christ. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2.14 tells us, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's still focused on the glory of God. Then probably the third most important reason is to have love for the lost. Love for the lost. Now, um, we don't want to be hyper-Calvinists and be those who don't love the lost. Although, to be quite honest with you, I've never met a true Christian who doesn't have compassion for the lost. I think somebody who says, I'm a Calvinist and I couldn't care less about the lost. Yes, he's a Calvinist. No, he's not a Christian. Uh, there are lots of Calvinists who aren't Christians. Romans chapter 9. I love this. Here's Paul's love for the lost. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And listen to his wish for his brothers as Jews. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I would go to hell if God would save all of Israel. Wow. Wow. That's love for the lost. I've never heard that before except from one other guy. Moses said the same thing. Cut me off, only don't cut your people off. That's why Moses and Paul have so much in common. So the three motives, proclaim the glory of God, proclaim to the lost that they might obtain the glory of Christ, and then love for the lost. And I think if you have your motives correct, that it's a lot easier to share the gospel. Because if your thought is, 
um, I've got to close this sale, you're going to fail and you're going to be scared and you're going to be afraid. If the thought is, I'm going to bring glory to God right now and I'm going to tap this guy in line on the shoulder and say, have you ever believed in anything before? And I'm going to ask him that question and pray for the Lord to lead me down a good path um, with him because he gives God glory. Uh, A friend of mine in ministry, he is a street preacher. He loves to do that. And he goes out every Wednesday in St. Louis and during baseball season, he goes uh, to, the, what's the name of the ballpark there? Uh, whatever the ballpark is there. He goes and he stands in the parking lot. These people coming by and he preaches the gospel. And I was in a seminar he did once. And somebody asked him, <clears throat> how many of them have you led to Christ? And, you know, kind of being sarcastic. And he said, every one of them. Every single one of them. I've led every one of them to the foot of the cross. Now, what God does with that is his business. But I've led them all to Christ. Okay, so, so that's how you think of evangelist. evangelism. Um, well, how many people have you led to Christ? Well, I don't know. How many have I shared the gospel with? Because I've led them all there. What God does with that is his business. So those are the motives. Let's talk about the means. We might call it the venue or the opportunity. <clears throat> there are volumes of books written on how to share the gospel. And so I'm not going to give you the how. I'm just going to give you uh, the opportunities Uh, that you might have. And a simple way I've done this is I just surveyed the New Testament, mostly Acts, and I found out how did people in the Bible share the gospel? And I found nine. Now, this is nine different ways. This isn't comprehensive. Um, I ran out of time, so, well, we got nine. So that's what we have. First one I found is close relatives. Close relatives. And one of the neatest three verses in all the Gospels, and you don't have to turn. I'm going to use a lot of different scriptures. You can just listen. John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak, speaking of John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. It's his brother saying, let me bring you to meet the Messiah. And of course, Andrew, you know, he fades into obscurity. You hardly hear about him again. And Peter becomes the famous guy. How did Peter come to be introduced to Christ? His brother brought him. And so close family members praying for and finding opportunities to introduce family members to Christ. You know, um, I get some of the probably the most pitiful cries for help about the fact I don't have opportunities to evangelize from one group of people, and that is young stay-at-home moms. And they say, how can I possibly go out and share the gospel? I've got 18 diapers that are dirty. You know, I've had triplets and twins, and, and I'm so busy. Oh, you have little disciples that you pray for in your, in your home. It's the beauty of being a mom. You've got a captive audience, and you've got about 20 years with each of them to lead them to Christ. So... Pray for opportunities to introduce family to Christ. Just out of curiosity, let me just show you this. How many right here know you have unbelieving family members right now? How's your prayer life? Pray for them. Close relatives. Here's another way to share the gospel is home hospitality. Home hospitality. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts. And the result is, later on it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a wonderful way to proclaim the gospel. And 
this says day by day those were being added. And this was the, the, the home evangelism ministry. Now, this is not a biblical basis for a home church-only ministry. Um, they did meet in the synagogue. They met in the temple courts. Um, they met in places together. But in their home, what's the witness? They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So you invite an unbeliever who, in this, in this context, in Jerusalem who's been religious his whole life, he said all the prayers, you know, and, and, and gone through all the motions. He sat there through the sacrifices. He's looked at his watch when the rabbis are, are talking and gone back about his business. And all of a sudden, you're in the place where people are who they really are. You know, when that's when you break out the sin. And that's when you break out the, the coarse talking. And in your home, this is who you really are. So you go someplace, and you're invited to somebody's house, and this is who they really are. Oh, I'm relaxed. This is great. And they serve food. And they say, let's pray. Let's thank our God for what he's given. And the owner of the house bows his head and he says, thank you for my Messiah, for Jesus. And the Jews going, you know who the Messiah is? I mean, we've been waiting 1,500 years for this guy. And you worship him and you're thankful? What a witness. Home hospitality. Don't underestimate the power of the casserole. It is a wonderful thing. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, I've known people who, they, they, the thought of going door to door and speaking to a stranger, you know, they'd rather have surgery than do that. But they can invite somebody into their home. And I have known, I knew one couple in particular that every January they made a New Year's resolution to pick one person that they were going to lead to Christ that year. Now, they were going to do their best. They were good Calvinists. They, didn't, they knew they couldn't actually do it. But what they meant was that they would find somebody, and sometimes it was a random person, um, a, a, a cashier at Starbucks or somebody that they would just decide, we're going to befriend this person. We're going to invite him or her into our home, and we're going to be the best thing that ever happened to them. Year by year by year, they led one person to Christ this way, over and over and over again. And um, they did it by inviting them to their house. Very simple. Here's a third means that happened in the Bible, and that's business and travel. Business and travel. The Thessalonian church had the reputation of spreading the gospel all over the Roman Empire. Well, Thessalonica was a huge center of business. It had a beautiful uh, protected port, so uh, ships liked to go there to deliver goods and to pick them up because there was a higher likelihood that they wouldn't sink while they're there. And so business happened all over the place. And I think it's reasonable to assume that because, you know, people think that business in the ancient world was somehow you set up a little grass hut and you, you know, sold beads and that's all you did. Business was very international, as much so as it is now. It just took longer to get places. And so instead of jumping on a plane from, uh, you know, from L.A. to New York to do business in two days— it took you a month to travel, and you would travel a few miles and stay someplace. You would travel a few miles and stay someplace. And the result is, is that the church at Thessalonica was spreading the gospel all over the place because in the course of their normal daily life, they simply shared who they were. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about our elder, uh, Grant Oweiler, is that he never takes a business trip without making it into a gospel opportunity. He's very intentional about that. Wherever he goes, whether it's China or Boston, he went a, a week or two ago, he always has a plan for sharing the gospel with 
with either one of his uh, one of his distributors or with a, a new manufacturer or somebody. He always has a plan to do that. He uses his business and uses travel. Wonderful example for us. Then another means, and this one is great because you don't have to worry about it. We would call it the providential meeting. The providential meeting. I think about Paul in the Roman prison and uh, the, the Praetorian guard, Caesar's personal guard, would come in in eight or 12 hour shifts, however they did it. And uh, one guy would leave and the next guy would come in and chain himself to Paul. And Paul has visitors coming in and out. He was really more under house arrest. It wasn't like a dungeon the first time around. Second time around, he was in a, a more of a prison proper. But he was basically in a rented house with a Roman guard sitting there, you know, reading the latest magazine or whatever and listening to the gospel be proclaimed all day long. Now I'm sure when Paul had a break, he would say, so, Julius, what do you worship? Well, I don't really want to talk about it. Well, that's fine. You have seven more hours. I have time. And so these providential meetings, Paul had dreamed of going to Rome. He told the Romans in Romans 1.15, I'm eager to proclaim the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, Paul's picture of it was that he was going to ride in on a white horse and, and preach to vast throngs of people. God's picture was he was going to be brought in chains and dragged to a house and proclaim the gospel one person at a time. And that's what he did. Until at the end of Philippians, when he greets the church at Philippi, who had financially supported him, he says, if the brothers greet you, and by the way, all the Christians of Caesar's guard do. <laughs> he was saving Caesar's household. I love that. Providential meeting. I have another name for that. Now, someday I'm going to write a book called this, Chicken Evangelism. Chicken Evangelism says, Lord, I'm too scared to do anything. Would you just bring people into my path? That's a great prayer to pray, and I've, I've seen that prayer be answered many times. Close relatives, home hospitality, business and travel, providential meeting. How about this one for the brave hearts? Street preaching. Street preaching. Paul in Athens says this about him in Acts 17, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That's street preaching. He was either sharing the gospel one with one person or with um, many at a time. That's a particular gift. I have done street preaching. It's not my favorite thing to do. I like to be precise. And I like to have somebody to track with me from the beginning of a thought to the end of a thought. And when somebody's walking by to, to capture their attention is not something I'm good at. What I'm better at is, is capturing the attention of those whose attention wants to be captured. So some of you, maybe one of you, is good at this. And so my prayer for our church is that we revitalize our street preaching ministry. Because we used to have one before I got here. But we need to find one or two guys, and frankly, gals, I don't care. Um, doesn't make any difference. Uh, women can preach in the marketplace because you're not leading the church. You're just proclaiming the gospel. No problem with that. Um, one or two to, to bravely stand on a soapbox and begin proclaiming the gospel, and five or six of you with gospel tracts wandering through the crowd, shouting an amen on occasion just to kind of help, help everybody out. Um, so... Street preaching, it's in the Bible, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. I don't think it's a particularly effective method if we're just going on, on numbers. But remember, what's the first motive? It is to glorify God. And so if your mouth is proclaiming the gospel, then 
Uh, we don't measure effectiveness by how many people get saved. We measure it by how many, um, how many times you were faithful or how faithful you were. Here's another method, one of my favorites. Bring the unbeliever to a gathering of believers. Bringing the unbeliever to a gathering of believers. This is the simplest one there is. This is why God invented church fellowships. Because you can slide somebody in into a comfortable setting. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What a wonderful thing. Um, You know what the best part, as much as I love square dancing and homemade root beer, you know what the best part of our hoedown is? Is the opportunity to bring an unbeliever. To just see, wow, these guys really like each other. This isn't, just a, this isn't just a club. It's a wonderful opportunity. This means bringing the unbeliever to simply witness and experience the fellowship of the saints. To just see it and just watch. This is why if we're not meeting together often, if we don't have a variety of ways that we meet together, um, we, we miss gospel opportunities. The church needs to gather on a regular basis so that uh, we have those gospel opportunities. Now, I do want to throw a caution into this. This is for a, a caution for our church as a whole, for the leadership in particular. Third John, verse 4, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We don't fool the unbeliever into thinking that somehow the church is just a social and emotional support system. Oh, you're, you're pregnant and you're single and you're poor. Come to the church. We'll take care of you. You're pregnant, you're single, you're poor. Come to the church, we will take care of you as we proclaim the gospel to you. You have to have that peace in there. It is not a place where we welcome unbelievers for an indefinite period of time who are disinterested in the gospel. Ultimately, they're either going to come and begin to listen and be interested, or they're going to go. And one of those needs to happen. I know of somebody in our church right now, I don't know where this person stands with the Lord. Um, but I know where this person used to stand with the Lord a year ago, and it was complete, utter rebellion and rejection. And right now, this person won't miss a worship service and will not miss a single sermon. And this person is wondering, what's going on (laughs) in my life? Simply because this person was invited to be with believers. One of the reasons to maintain a healthy church body is to be fertile soil in which to bring an unbeliever. Let me repeat that. One of the reasons we maintain a healthy church body is to be fertile soil in which to bring an unbeliever. Let me, let me put this at you a different angle, and I probably should say this to the whole congregation. Every time a church member decides to be selfish, to make trouble, to live in sin in a way that they shouldn't, to make the elders, instead of dealing with shepherding people, they have to deal with discipline. Every time somebody messes up the health of a local church by their rebellion, you've now created an environment that is unsafe to bring the unbeliever. It is the saddest thing in the world to me to hear somebody say, I would love to bring my non-Christian friend to church, but I don't trust our church. I don't trust that Euodia and Syntyche aren't going to get in a knockdown claw fest right in the middle of a worship service. I don't trust that. So one of the reasons we work at protecting the health of the church, protecting the purity of the church, is that it needs to be a safe place to bring the unbeliever, to gather together. Healthy church is not just about us. And by the way, an unhealthy church, uh, people in the world, unsaved people, they may be unsaved, they may be unregenerate, but they're not stupid. They're not unintelligent. 
they see something that is wrong when they and they know it. And what does that do to their love for the gospel or their, their hope for Christ? I don't want anything to do with that. That's what your religion is. I don't want anything to do with that. That's why Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. So important. Here's another means. One of my favorites is to do the work of an evangelist from the pulpit. From the pulpit. This is not the means of evangelism. It is a means. Paul commanded Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And that's the title of our time today. But what that's specifically speaking of is preaching that contains the gospel. Now, I want to tell you, there's a difference between evangelistic preaching and gospel-centered preaching. Evangelistic preaching frustrates the believer because it's too simple. And it's the same thing over and over again. And it's eight to ten different texts in the New Testament done five times a year. Gospel-centered preaching, I have a challenge in my own heart. I can preach the gospel from any word or verse in the Bible. I can get you to the cross from Leviticus. Well, that was easy. I can get you to the cross from Judges. That's a little harder. There's always a path to the cross through Scripture. Gospel-centered preaching should be that you can have confidence that elements of and pieces of and a certain angle of and a certain idea about the gospel will be in every message that you hear if I ever, I've, I've said this in every Grace Advance or Grace uh, Connect class I've ever done. Uh, if you ever hear me preach a message that has no element of the gospel whatsoever, I want to know about it. I will re-preach that message or issue a public apology. The gospel has to be there all the time. Now, it doesn't mean that it has to be the same. Um, I'm not going to, uh, you know, for the sake of variety, at the end of every message, just stop and say, now, if you're here and you don't know Christ, that's a wonderful thing to do, but we're going to insert the gospel in And I like to do it creatively. I like to weave it in because you know what I believe? I believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who who believe. And the Holy Spirit can say to somebody's heart, did you hear that little part? That's the part that just saved you. And somebody can say, you know, there's something in there. I think I just got saved. So from the pulpit, do the work of an evangelist. Now there's two purposes for this. First of all, my, my reason... Number one for proclaiming the gospel from the pulpit is to warn the fraudulent church member. There's no way, there's no way um, statistically that every person that we have a membership application for on our files, that every single one of them is regenerate. I I, I hope so. I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to be the first church with a 100% record. But the fact is, Jesus said, tares will grow up with the wheat. And right now, I have, a, I have a list of six people in our church that I'm praying for because I'm concerned. And these are people that are, some of them involved. Some of them on the surface look good, but I've had enough conversations with them to know this isn't real. This is not real for you. And so I have people I'm praying for. So we proclaim the gospel so that at some point the Lord might save church members and that he might um, uh, expose the fraudulent. The other reason, though... Aside just for the unbeliever, the other reason is to remind us of gospel truth. The Christian who isn't reminded of gospel truths of the doctrines of justification, sanctification, and and purification, and all the the glory that goes with the gospel, I I think we get jaded and we forget where we came from. We can become proud. Um, We need to be led to the cross continually to remember that we didn't deserve um, what Christ did. 
So the gospel is good for us. It's, it's healthy. It's like, it's like uh, when you run a marathon, you get that oxygen mask on. That's the gospel. It, it revitalizes your system. Here's another method, and, and I think sometimes we, we downplay this, but that is to send others out. To send others out. The system that we have of a local church or a group of local churches commissioning some men to go out and proclaim the gospel, I have heard people say, well, that's just a cop-out. That's you not wanting to do that work. Well, where do we get that system? How about the Apostle Paul? Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Paul were chosen and they were sent out by their home church. The Apostle Paul had a home church? Yes, he did. He had a group of elders to whom he was accountable, even as an apostle. The church at Syrian Antioch. They were qualified men, they were prayed for, they were supported, and they were sent. They were sent out. By supporting those who do the front lines work of the gospel, we are doing the work of an evangelist. Now, by the way, just so you know, when we say evangelist in Scripture, that is not scripturally a guy who travels around and holds three days' worth of meetings and then goes on to the next city. That is not biblical. An evangelist in Scripture is a church planter. He is a guy who goes and puts down roots someplace and plants a church and raises up leaders and either stays there for a lifetime or turns it over to those leaders. An evangelist doesn't leave tracks and counselors and programs behind. An evangelist leaves churches behind. That's what an evangelist is. So that's why in our church, we have a, our, our philosophy of ministry on those we support in global missions, which includes the United States, our philosophy of ministry is this big. We have one question. Are you a church planter? If so, you're eligible for our support. If you're not, God bless you and your work, but we're not supporting water, water purification projects in Africa. Because maybe they will be a means to lead some to Christ, but it's not church planting. And so we're very narrow-minded about that in the best sense of that word. How about this method? And we'll, we'll finish with this one. How about prayer? People forget that that is a means to evangelize. Colossians 4.3, Paul says, Pray for an open door for the word of God. What a wonderful prayer. Acts 4.29, we see an example of prayer for boldness. When the new church in Jerusalem was being threatened by authorities, here's what they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's a great prayer to pray. Sometimes, especially when you're face-to-face with somebody and you know that you're chickening out, your knees are going weak, and suddenly you're afraid that they're not going to like you. Lord, make me bold for your glory. Just pray that prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Pray that the word of the Lord would be honored, which gives God more glory for you to hide his word or for you to proclaim it. It is to proclaim it. And then just very openly, pray for new converts. Pray for new converts. My favorite evangelistic prayer in the whole Bible is when, when somebody's last words on this earth are an evangelistic prayer, that's pretty important. Stephen, as he was being murdered, said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's a prayer for converts. And you know who was standing right there, of course, was Saul. I think the Apostle Paul got saved because of Stephen's prayer in God's sovereignty. That's just my opinion. Pray for new converts. And by the way, 
God will always bring the new converts in a way that, that surprises you and gives him all the glory and not you. I've actually had somebody tell me, yes, I came to faith in Christ, but it was more despite your gospel presentation rather than because of it. And I, okay, well, great. <laughs> You're in the kingdom, but uh, that was embarrassing. Pray for new converts. And then also pray for mercy on the unbeliever. You know, I think a wonderful thing to pray for the unbeliever is, Lord, keep them alive until they come to you. Eternity is a really, really long time. And so I have no problem praying for the health and the safety of unbelievers. I want them to live as long as they can so that they might hear the gospel. The Lord desires to answer prayers for the salvation of the lost. Now, I might add one more. I said that was it, but I'll I'll add one more. And it's not so much a means, but just a, a fact The ultimate director of any local church's evangelism program, if you want to call it that, the ultimate director is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our director. He leads the evangelistic efforts of a local church. John 3, he's pictured as the wind who blows when it wills. Goes wherever he wants. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian court official is sitting in his chariot reading from Isaiah. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Philip's going, go sit with a guy in a chariot wearing really funny clothes, and I've never met him before. Okay, so he goes over there, and what happens? He finds out the guy's reading from Isaiah, and he asks him, do you know what you're reading? How can I, unless somebody explains it to me? Will you explain it to me? And it's like shooting fish in a barrel because the Spirit of God is the one directing the evangelistic efforts. Well, uh, one of my friends, a guy by the name of Jesse Johnson, he is, uh, used to be the pastor of evangelism at Grace Community Church. He pastors in the, on the East Coast now. He has five practical steps to jumpstart your personal evangelistic efforts. I want to do these briefly with you. Five steps to jumpstart your own evangelistic efforts. Oh, well, you're, you're here, first of all. That would be step zero, so that's good. I think um, I, I sympathize with those who don't find evangelism easy or natural. I don't. Um, it's not because I don't love the gospel. I don't want God to be glorified, but... I work better with people who really want to hear something. When somebody starts arguing with me, I start losing interest because I'm not that good of an arguer. And somebody says, well, can you prove that God exists? Uh, you know, and I, my mind goes blank. And, and, you know, somebody says, four years of seminary. Boy, that did a lot of good. I mean, when you're in that situation, you know how it is. You feel like, I can't, I can't put my words together right. Well, I know he exists. Well, how? Can you prove it? Well, no, but he just does. You know, th- these ratcheting arguments that do nothing. So I have a lot of, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for those who find themselves um, maybe a little bit intimidated. And so here's five steps that Jesse uh, suggests, and they're really, really wonderful. First one is live a transformed life. Live a transformed life, a holy and a set-apart life. That is your platform for powerful evangelism. That's your platform for powerful evangelism. Your changed life is one of the most compelling proofs of the truth of the gospel. I got to, uh, the other night, had the funniest thing happen I've, I've seen in many years. And as a result of it, I got to, um, at the very least, uh, give a business card and invite a, a waitress uh, to church. And, and maybe we'll see her. I don't know. I got to talk to her for a little bit. But what happened was, is that she brought my giant iced tea and it slid across the tray and completely soaked me completely now what if i had jumped up and cursed at her and told her that i want to see the manager and this and that as it happened i was with my wife and other guests who all laughed their heads off at me 
which was fabulous. And we got to laughing so hard, I thought it was going to hurt something. And we had to spend the rest of the meal comforting her that we weren't going to get mad, that we weren't going to get her fired. And she kept apologizing and apologizing. And um, that was a wonderful opportunity. And I remember the, I remember with great angst in my own heart wondering what would have happened if I had responded in anger, if I had responded with frustration. I would have lost that opportunity. I would have lost it. So live a transformed life. Your sanctification is not just about you. It is about being a witness to the world. Second, and we've already spoken about this, but this is Jesse's second step. Pray relentlessly. Pray relentlessly. Paul explained concerning his Jewish brethren who were lost in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Simply pray. If you can't do anything else, you can get a piece of paper and write a list of names and commit to pray for them. And let God do the rest. You know what prayer I like to pray is, Lord, bring somebody into their path who will share the gospel with them. It's a wonderful prayer. Pray for God to bring unbelievers across your path. Pray for God to recognize opportunities that are already present. When you interact with somebody in in the community on a regular basis and you realize, I could be cultivating this friendship and I'm not doing it. Look for those opportunities. Pray for them. Believe in and look for providential meetings. If you start looking for them today, if you prayed right now today, Lord, I want to have a providential meeting with somebody today, I believe God would answer that prayer today. Because he loves to connect the unbelievers with the gospel. He loves that. Here's the third thing that Jesse suggests is simply start the conversation. Start the conversation. Develop a relationship. Ask questions and listen to the answer. Ask a person if they have faith of any kind. Just start the conversation. Man, somebody told me, I've really, I'm really praying for so-and-so. I've been you know, hopeful to share the gospel with them. Oh, really? How long have you known them? Well, just seven years. But we're really trying to get that relationship formed. You should have been sharing the gospel six years and 11 months ago and begin that conversation. Some of the most interesting conversations you can ever have is simply to ask the question, what do you believe in? Boy, you can go down all kinds of rabbit trails, and you don't have to pound them over the head with the cross immediately. Just find out where they go. Sometimes they'll take themselves right to the foot of the cross with a sense of desperation. You know, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, but I've noticed none of those things work, and to be honest with you, I'm really searching right now. Well, do you mind if I share with you what I've found? Boy, the Lord sometimes uses those conversations, and you think, wow, that was, that was easy. But start the conversation. What do you believe? Do you have a faith of any kind? Where, where is God? Can I tell you about my life before I found out that God exists? And just stay real broad like that and, and work it to the gospel. That brings us to number four. Get specific. Explain the gospel. Explain the gospel. Talk about spiritual things. Explain what you believe. Explain why you believe it. And how do you explain this? Explain that here's what I believe. I, I believe in the Bible, and here's some things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy. The Bible says that mankind is not, and that there's a chasm between us, and that I'm on the unholy side, and that I needed to have a transformed life, but I can't do it. And the Bible says that everything I've ever done to impress God just makes him more mad. And I'm a sinner, and, and I needed his grace. And I'm so thankful that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for my sin so that I could walk across that bridge and be with the Lord and be one of his children. I'm just so thankful for that. 
You know, there, nobody can put down your own personal experience. We live in a postmodern era. We live in an era where experience is everything. So use your experience. Let me tell you my experience. I have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I do believe in the propositional truth of the gospel. That's been my experience. Somebody might say, I don't agree with what you believe, but they can never logically say, I disagree with your experience. The fact that you've been married 30 years and you love your wife and your kids are, are wonderful kids and you're a responsible citizen, I can't deny that. I cannot deny your life. And then the final suggestion that Jesse Johnson has is don't give up, don't get discouraged. Sinners refuse to embrace the truth because they're spiritually dead, not because you're a lousy evangelist. Nobody will ever stand before the Lord and say, but God, if Rudy had given me a clearer presentation, I would have understood. I would have come to faith. And God says, you know, Rudy, he has a point there. You know, if you had not messed it up, that never happens. People reject the gospel because they're dead, not because you're a lousy evangelist. Can you imagine the church at Thessalonica? You know how many evangelism classes they ever had? None. They never did this. They had three months, maybe, of instruction. And, it, and then it was gone. And they just simply shared their faith, what they knew. And yet they spread the gospel all over the world. You are completely insufficient for the task of transferring somebody from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You can't do it. You cannot do that. There are not a million people on earth who can do that. It's an impossible task. You have no sufficiency. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. I don't particularly care for the phrase, when I led so-and-so to Christ, except in the sense when I led them to the cross to understand who Christ is. I've never led anybody into the kingdom. Now, I think I've been in the room when somebody's been led into the kingdom. I think I've been in the room when the Holy Spirit has regenerated somebody, and, I, and I've seen that. And that's a wonderful thing, but um, I, I can't claim any credit. You know what's beautiful, though? Every person who comes to faith and every person who doesn't come to faith that you shared the gospel with, God will give you credit because you brought him glory. And you get a reward. He does all the work and then he piles of a bucket load of gold at your feet to say thanks for your help, even though I didn't need it. I love that. You trust the Lord for the results, faithfulness to proclaim the message. That's the measure of success. Every unbeliever you share with, just lead them to the cross. Lead them to the cross. God will do what he will with that. And I would say also, I'm going to add a sixth one. I would say set your sights low. What do I mean by that? Be realistic. I know of a pastor that proclaimed on a, a January, first Sunday in January, he proclaimed, my personal goal is to share the gospel with 200 people this year, and I want to encourage you to do the same. And he had a big sign-up list. Who's willing to walk down the aisle and, and proclaim to God that I'm going to share the gospel with 200 people this year, and who wants to join me in doing that? A couple of people kind of the two weirdest people in the church. Hey, I'll do that. You know, they come up. Um, he learned his lesson the next year. He said, this year I'm going to share the gospel faithfully all year long with one person who would like to join me. The whole church comes up to do that. Now, which is more effective? Two people 
doing 200 or 1,000 people doing one. So that's the body working together. So I hope that you will do the work of an evangelist as even as I try to be faithful to do so. Rudy, I took too much time. Uh, it's all yours. Well, thank you for coming. Um, we did have something similar like this. My wonderful brother, Rick Gavin, did a workshop on evangelism. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. Um, he's really gifted in this area. And, but today, I just, I just wanted, to, I wanted, I wanted to put this together just to stir you up, encourage you, just what Scripture has to say about evangelism. And what we're going to do, let's turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And as we go through this, you'll see evangelism come forth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would stir us up, challenge us, bring conviction, Lord. Mold us into the image of Christ. Lord, that we would do the work of an evangelist. That we would not be ashamed of the gospel. And Lord, I am just thankful, Lord, for this opportunity to share your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to focus on a couple of things, the charge and our responsibility to that charge. In 2002, we started attending Grace Bible Church here. I was a churchgoer. I went to church because, hey, it was the right thing to do, you know. I was a, I was a father. I was a husband. Roman was a little guy then. And I knew I started learning scripture and to an extent to defend the truth, but there was no power behind it because I wasn't saved. But when I started coming to Grace Bible Church, I sat in a doctrines of grace class, just totally just shattered me like a sledgehammer just broke my pride. I finally realized what grace meant. That I didn't meet God halfway or helped Him out. It just came down from heaven and opened my eyes. The other thing that I, I, I started noticing at the people I was talking to in this body, they had a, a high view of the Word and the preaching of God's Word. So I, as I began to dig in, everything started changing in my life. Desires, just love for people. Everything started molding my heart. So let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, 
they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Verse 4. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. I'm going to have eight bullet points here, and I'm going to try to go through this quickly, because I know we're a little bit over. We don't want the food to get cold, right? So verse 1, what is Timothy saying? I mean, what is Paul saying to Timothy? He says, it says, Timothy, Paul saying to Timothy, you live and work as one that is visible to God. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you and holding you responsible with the gospel. Christ will be judging the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. So what is he saying? That God is watching. God is watching your work. Here's my bullet point. Remember, we have been called by God to represent Him. It's wonderful when we come here and we worship, and I think it's been a blessing to have Darren here with music. It's great to worship the Lord, right, in song, but we also are responsible to live a holy life and to represent Him. Verse 2. Preach the word. It's very clear. Preach the word. Don't water it down. God doesn't need our help. Don't make it a social or relevant gospel. He just says, preach the word. Don't mess it up. When we walk in here, and I, I we always hear good, nice compliments about our building. But the power doesn't come from that. The power comes from preaching God's Word. That's what changes lives. When Pastor Steve preaches Sunday mornings, God's doing a work in people's heart. He's saving them or molding them into the image of Christ. By preaching God's word, that is when God is doing a work in people's lives. He's taking a person that used to be on drugs, making them clean, an alcoholic, whatever it is. He's turning around their destiny. The other way that we are by preaching God's word and teaching God's word is like through classes like BTI. What's going on here at our church? So what is Paul saying when we read all these verses together and by preaching God's word faithfully? He's just saying, be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful in your walk. It's not about success. It's not about numbers, how many people are here. It's not about money. It's about being faithful and following Jesus. Why? Because we have been charged with the gospel. We will be held accountable 
with God's word, about God's word. Also in verse 2, and let's camp here for just a second, in season and out of season. In season and out of season. What is he saying? He's saying you preach the word, you share your faith, you share the gospel when you feel like it or not. When you feel like it or not. There's good days, there's bad days in ministry, right? There's great days you're like, wow, I've seen the Lord use me in these people's lives. And then there's dry seasons, right? You're like, wow, man, this is, this is tough. I feel dry now. So what is he saying? Even in those tough days, to be faithful whether you feel like it or not, that we should not be ashamed of the gospel and to continue to preach His Word. You know how many times I drive down Santa Fe, the back way to the prison, knowing that, you know, I haven't seen my boys all day, but I'm going to go, I mean, not on Mondays, I'm sorry, Thursdays. And... You know, I sometimes I'd rather hang out with the family, you know, and I'm a little tired from work, but it's about being faithful to my calling. Because we've been charged with the gospel, like verse one says. Not only that, it is a command. It is a command to share the to share his truth. You probably I, I've heard this many times. Hey, I'm not gifted in this. Well, let me ask. Let, let me throw something else at you with that. Let me challenge you on that. Are you gifted to love your neighbor? Are you gifted to love your neighbor? That's also a command to love your neighbor as yourself. So by proclaiming the gospel, sharing God's word, when we feel like it or not, we have been commanded to share that truth. And we not only share with people just like us, you need to share it with everyone. Not people like you, the money status or the... People that like the same kind of hobbies as you. It's every tongue and nation. Also in verse 2, it says to correct, rebuke, and exhort, right? So what is Paul saying here? He's just saying to the church, you know, know your people. Know your people. Sometimes we're called to correct. Sometimes we're called to rebuke. You don't want to be rebuked. It's not very fun. (laughs) And we're also called to encourage one another. We're called to encourage one another. And at the end of verse 2, it also says to be patient with people. That's a bullet point. Be patient with people. It's not a one-size-fits one size fits all. 
You, everybody's different. You deal with them different. Sometimes you have to be people, with some people you have to be harsh. Some people you need to be gentle and kind and, you know, and patient. Why do we have to be patient with people? Because God has been patient with us. That's why. That is why. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. In verse 2. And to be an encouragement with one another. Verse 3. Be faithful. Be faithful. Stay on course. Because the time is coming. Time is coming of what? Well, that time is here, right? People seeking out teachers that, that, that teach about just selfish things, money, that Jesus can get you a Mercedes Benz and, and make you wealthy and healthy, right? I've never met him that way. I know that Jesus saves. I know he turns around your destiny. That's the real Jesus of the Bible. In verse 4, it's very clear, pretty simple. They will turn away from the truth. Verse 4 says, And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We see that every day. Every day. So let's get into verse 5 here. He says, Be sober minded. Be sober minded. He says, Paul says to Timothy, Be sober minded. Why? Because God's people sometimes get off course, right? We get off course. We need to be steady. That's a bullet point. We need to be steady. We need to be rock-like. We need to be Jesus-like. As you grow in the saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be steady. We need to be firm. We need to be consistent. We need to be sober-minded in Christ. Also in verse 5, what I see is endure suffering. Paul tells Timothy to endure. This is not easy. Paul tells the church, he tells us to endure suffering. That's a bullet point there. To endure suffering. We have a beautiful church here, right? And I remember when it was just cement walls or brick walls. I remember us and the boys coming in here framing and, and, and putting up lights and walls and this carpet. But we need to understand something. That once we live, leave this beautiful place where everybody has something in common, we all love Jesus, right? Right outside the doors is the gates of hell just waiting, right? So there is a time that it gets tough. And we need to endure. You remember in the end of Galatians where Paul says, I bear the marks of my Lord on my body. On my body. There is suffering. We need to endure. It's tough. 
We need to encourage one another. Sometimes people ask me, Dave can relate here. Hey, how's the, how, how is the safety in the prison? Is it safe? I say there's no safer place but to be in the center of God's will. There's no safer place. No safer place. So whenever someone encourages you, hey, come out on Saturdays to share the gospel, there's no safer place. Sometimes doors get slammed. Sometimes you get cussed out. But there's no safer place because you've been called. You've been entrusted with the gospel to share God's truth. It is a command. Verse 5, at the end there, it says, Do the work of an evangelist. Bullet point, do it. Do it. Use words. Use words. Some people say, well, you know, just, just live a godly life and they'll see and they'll want what you have. Well, can you imagine if just Steve stood up there behind the pulpit and just didn't say nothing? You have to use words. You have to open your mouth. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So what's in your heart? How can you not show that love you have for Jesus to other people and what He's done for you? He's given you eternal life. He's brought you out of death unto life. Isn't that exciting to you? You might say, I'm not gifted in this area. So does that mean when you get home, you're not going to share it with your kids? Or your neighbor? Think about that. I'll read you a couple of quotes. Most Christians love evangelism as long as someone else is doing it. <laughs> Spurgeon said, you know, this is Spurgeon for you. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Be sure of that. There's a gentleman named Harry Reader. And he tells a story about his father that bought him a pink 57 Ford. He was 16 years old. And he tells his dad, I can't drive that to school, Dad. That's a pink car. And his dad was listening to his dad says, Son, a poor ride is better than a proud walk. So when Harry looked under the hood, the car had a powerful racing engine underneath the hood. Harry says, it might not look like much, but there's power under that hood. There's power under that hood. What has God saved you from? Are we broken vessels that God uses, right? And as we go out into the neighborhoods and share and proclaim His Word, and in your daily life, in your relationships, broken people that God's redeemed from the sewer, reached into the sewer and saved you, we might not look like much, but there is power in the gospel. 
There's power in the gospel. And the last is fulfill your ministry. Bullet points, fulfill your ministry. And this is what we're trying to do here at Grace Bible Church. It's to fulfill our ministry. What God has called you to do. When you walk down this hallway, there's three E's. If, you've, if you haven't seen them, they're right outside that door. Number one is exalt. Let's exalt the Lord, right? Let's exalt the Lord with our lives. Let's exalt and worship the Lord with song, right? Number two is equip. We're called to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We get that through BTI, small groups, Sunday morning, uh, Sunday schools, right? But let me tell you something. Let me challenge you with this. You cannot leave number three out at all out of your life. And that is to evangelize. We're not the frozen chosen here, okay? We are called to evangelize. If you're doing one and two, right? You're not fulfilling your ministry if you're not doing three. And that's evangelism. Let me encourage you with that. Because you know what evangelism does? It, ch it changes people. It changes communities, doesn't it? This is a sign of a healthy church. And evangelism has to be a part of it. So what is he telling us? You do it in season and out of season, whether you feel like it or not. You have been charged with the gospel, right? Verse 1. I'm holding you accountable before God. God sees us. God's, God is watching us. So let me encourage you with this. Because I've been there. Let's not, let's not lock ourselves in our theological rooms and just read, 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 which is good, right? And studying. Studying doctrine. Right? We need to get out of those rooms and share God's word to a lost and hurting world. Is God loving you now? Has God been loving you yesterday? Has God lo is loving you tomorrow? How can you not share that love with others? Fulfill your ministry. Once a month we go out, we meet here, and we just go out for about an hour, an hour and a half. We go out door to door sharing God's truth. Either Number one is to share the gospel. The next step is invite him to church. Invite him to church. We go in groups, so you don't have to do it by yourself. No lone rangers. We just go alongside each other, and we learn from each other. We come back here, and we talk about what we learned, what questions were brought up, and we answer those. We have good leaders in our, in our groups when we go out. So again, why did we get together? Just to stir you up. Just to challenge you. Don't get comfortable in this area. Because it, it can be sinful. It can be. 
So, what's a healthy church? Preaching the preaching God's word. Disciple disciple makers, right? Evangelism is huge. Let me read to you what J.D. Greer said, and and we'll just we'll close with that. J.D. Greer. It is true that some believers have been given a particular gift for evangelism, Ephesians 4.11, but a spiritual gift given to a few should not eclipse that the assignment us given to all, a spiritual gift is typically a special ability and an assignment given to all believers. For example, those believers who have the gifts of service, generosity, or faith are not the only ones who should serve share their stuff, or believe God. That some Christians are given an extraordinary ability in those things should not eclipse that the fact that they are the responsibility of all believers. The same is true of evangelism. While some have been given a special effectiveness in bringing others to Jesus, the Spirit comes upon all of us to testify The Great Commission is for everyone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts in this area. Lord, mold us in it. Mold us and shape us. Help us to be more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.